me to share a little bit about what it means to be a mother with you. To be honest, when he posed the question, the first word that popped into my head was hard. (laughs) But I took a moment to deconstruct that thought. Motherhood is so many things that are often conflicting. It is hard, but it's also easy. Motherhood is slow and monotonous, but time flies, and it's forever changing. It's draining, bone-tired work, but it's also a joy and rejuvenating. The hard parts stand out in our minds. But the gift of motherhood is in tiny moments. Small bouquets from little fingers, a cheerful greeting from a squeaky voice, huge hugs from tiny arms, and all the sweet moments in between rough times. That is motherhood, a blessing, a good gift from the Lord. So, what do we do when we're given a gift? We thank the giver, right? I thank our great God for the sweet sounds of laughter, for messy fingerprints on glass, for presents made from pom-poms and lots of glue. (laughs) And each of the little lives... I get to be a part of, but sometimes my gratitude falters. Sometimes I get caught up in the doing. Sometimes I tire of doing good. And when I feel those things creeping up on me, I look at my purpose. I am to love the Lord my God and share how my Lord died for my sins so I can be with him always. What better job than motherhood to share those things? What a perfect place to carry out my purpose. I get to live a life for his glory, and it is a beautiful gift. That is motherhood, friends, a blessing for his glory. Happy Mother's Day. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. I'm uh, not sure if I even need to speak after Amy's testimony. Thank you for that. And uh, I'd also definitely echo... One thing Logan said, and that is feeling unqualified to speak about motherhood. But uh, I'm going to do my best. Like many of you, I have a Facebook account. I'm not there super often, but I am occasionally. And recently I checked and my wife had tagged me in a post. It was actually a rather humorous collection of memes that describe what parenting and especially mothering is like. Rather than trying to explain those, I've uh, copied a few of those this morning for you to see. So let's see if you can relate to any of these. So here we have general parenthood. If you're ever wondering what it's like to be the parent of a toddler. All right, next one. Trying to get the kids to eat their food, right? The never-ending battle. This one is very relatable. Um... You know, the constantly changing taste of children. All right, next. Trying to figure out how to deal with the constant noise in the house, right? I mean, you know, that toy mysteriously broke. I don't know how. (laughs) Trying to get the kids to sleep (laughs) without them waking up. And then, yep, next one. The general exhaustion associated with being a mother. That's a toothbrush, in case you're, you're wondering. And then, 
That's the last one there. So, many of those, and thank you for the help in advancing those slides, many of those are quite clever and probably, you know, I obviously heard you chuckle, but they do touch on a few underlying truths about parenting and especially about motherhood. And that is, it's hard, it's exhausting, and it can feel monotonous as you do the same thing day after day after day. It's often frustrating and wearying. And yes, I know it is also rewarding and that you mothers genuinely love your kids. But I also know that there are times when you feel like you don't have anything left to give and you sincerely wonder if you're doing more harm than good. And on top of all that, you often feel the guilt of having any negative feelings about motherhood at all. Well, today's message is for you. But today's message is not only for mothers of children who are still in the house. It's also for those empty nesters who may lay awake at night wondering if they were a good mom and thinking of all the ways that you could have done something differently. It's for the women who desperately want to be a mother but are prevented from that role by factors outside of your control. And this message is also for the men. For those of us who are married or will be married to any of the above, and we so often fail to adequately recognize all that our wives do in being mothers, how we fail to empathize with their struggles, fears, and frustrations, how we fail to treasure the amazing helpmate that God has placed by our sides. This message is for all of us, and the text of the message can be found in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. So I encourage you to turn there. And as you're turning, our passage of Scripture is part of a larger section that's discussing the qualifications for eldership and the role of men and women. We're not going to get into all of that. It's a wonderful study. We're going to be looking at several verses that are found in verses uh, 13 through 15, but we're going to mainly focus on verse 15. We're going to read 13 through 15 so we can get the context, but again... We're going to focus on verse 15. So I'm reading from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting with verse 13. It says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now when reading this, again, we're going to be focusing primarily on 15, is who is Paul referring to? Because he says she, in verse 15, she will be saved through childbearing. Is this a specific woman? Well, Paul is likely referring to women in general for two reasons. One is that in the preceding verses, Paul was speaking about a generic woman. Not a specific woman, but a generic woman meant to represent all women. And the second reason is that we see later in verse 15, Paul uses the word they. But that's likely not the first question that popped into your mind when reading this verse. Rather, it was likely, what is this being saved through childbearing? Does that mean that if you're a woman, you must have children in order to be saved? Well, we know that cannot be true because that would imply a works-based salvation. So what does it mean? Now, full disclosure here, 
I had a wonderful sermon assistant this week helping me understand his verse. You may know him. His name is John Piper. Piper has an enormously helpful article on this verse. And the key in interpreting this verse is realizing that Paul did not say she would be saved in childbirth or by childbirth, but rather through childbirth. Piper says, Could she will be saved through childbearing mean? She will be saved not by means of, but through, that is, in spite of, the engulfing pains of childbirth. I'd argue that's exactly what Paul means. Because we see Paul using similar language elsewhere in one of his other epistles, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 15. There, Paul says, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Again, we see someone being saved through or in spite of something. In this case, it's fire. And here it is clear that Paul does not mean that the fire is saving the person, but rather the person is being saved despite the fire. So, now that we know what Paul means, the next question would be, well, why would he say that? Why would women need to be saved in spite of childbirth? Well, to answer that, I've got a little pop quiz for you. Now, don't worry, it's Mother's Day, so I've made the question pretty easy. Where today, apart from this sermon, have we heard a reference to childbearing before? Remember our scripture from earlier? Genesis chapter 3 that Logan read for us. Let's read that again. It says in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, To the women, to the woman, he, that is God, said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. In looking at this curse from Genesis, I'd like to again quote Piper. He says, Pause and feel the weight of this for women in the centuries before modern medicine. No hygiene, no spinal blocks, no sutures, no cesareans, no antibiotics, no painkillers, and often no recovery. Untold numbers of women died in childbirth and countless more suffered the rest of their lives from wounds that prevented childbirth or any kind of normal sexual life. In other words, even more than today, there were aspects of childbearing that felt like a curse from God, and often that burden lasted a lifetime, not just the moment of birth. Now, neither Piper nor I want to take anything away from the experience that you women endure during childbirth. Now, I've been there twice, and as an observer, obviously. <laughs> but by the grace of God, Modern medicine has significantly lessened the risks and complications associated with childbirth. One source I looked at said that in the 16 and 1700s, the mortality rate during childbirth was one to one and a half women per 100 births. That means that if you had four kids, you had a four to six percent chance of dying. Today in the U.S., the risk is about 1.5 in 10,000, which is still surprisingly high but remarkably better than it was. But even with modern medicine, some of you today have scars and ongoing pain or other issues as a result of childbirth. You know, personally, I was born via cesarean, and if it were not for the doctors being able to perform that operation quickly and safely, neither me nor my mother would likely be here today. 
the curse from Genesis 3 is real. But here in 1 Timothy 2.15, Paul is saying that this curse is not the final word. God did not stop with the curse. He has more to say. If we look again back to Genesis 3, we will see that there is also a promise of salvation in the woman's offspring. 3.15 of Genesis, he says, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, from the very beginning, God prophesied that there was going to be a struggle between the devil and his offspring, which in John 8, 44, we see as unbelievers, and then the woman and her offspring, which is representative of Christ and those who believe in him. God then says that Satan will bruise Christ's heel, but that Christ will bruise or crush Satan's head. Now, please do me a favor and picture that for a moment. Okay, Think of a snake biting your heel. For some of you, that's absolutely terrifying because you are deathly afraid of snakes. Personally, I'm not. My dad's a nature lover and owned several snakes as pets growing up. Now, that did make some interesting conversations when the other person also found out my dad was a pastor, and I do explain to them that we're not that kind of church. (laughs) But anyway, picture a snake biting your heel. You initially don't know that that snake is there, but then it bites you, and you feel it. You scream out in pain, you look down, you see the snake, you raise up your heel, and then you bring it right back down and crush that snake's head. That's exactly what happened with Christ. Satan thought that he had won when he struck Christ and killed him on the cross. But Christ used that very death to defeat sin and death forever, thereby crushing Satan. Listen to how the author of Hebrews describes it in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says that through death he, that is Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Indeed, when we look contextually at verses 13, 14, and 15 of 1 Timothy 2, that's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying, yes, we sinned, and yes, there is a curse, but it doesn't end there. That is not God's final verdict, because there's also a promise. And that promise is salvation. And that salvation is found in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So to sum up what Paul is saying in the first portion of 1 Timothy 2.15, he's saying God's promise of salvation is bigger than the curse of childbirth. Though it may feel at times as if this curse is too crushing, God's salvation will come through. And in saying that, Paul is also pointing mothers to a day in which the curse associated with childbearing will be no more. Because Christ is coming back to restore that perfect creation where there was no curse. Satan's already been defeated. Yes, he's allowed to roam the earth right now, but he's been beat. And a day is coming when he and all of his followers, again, are the unbelievers, are going to be condemned to eternal punishment, whereas the followers of Christ will join him in a new heaven and a new earth for all eternity. 
that day is coming. Paul's saying, do not lose hope. Now, this is all amazing, right? I mean, it really is. But I know the question you're asking. And it's the same question I'd be asking. And that is, well, how does that affect the here and now? You're saying, Alan, childbirth is only a part of it. And you even admitted that modern medicine has lessened the consequences of that curse. But what do I do when my kids won't listen? When the children and the husband are passing the baton on whose turn it is to have a meltdown. When I'm seriously contemplating putting in earplugs to avoid long-term hearing damage from all the noise. When I'm awake at night more than I'm asleep and I realize that it has been years since I've had an uninterrupted night of sleep. When I can't decide if I want to cry or scream or both. How does this passage speak to those moments? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the answer to those moments are what we find in the second half of this verse. To read it again, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It's very tempting to read the second part of this verse and again turn it into a works-based salvation. We can easily read it to say, Women are only saved in spite of childbearing, if they have enough faith, perfect love, and complete holiness, oh, and and also be perfectly self-controlled. We miss the words, continue in. The path of salvation here is no different from the path of salvation that Paul clearly lays out elsewhere. We are saved by grace through faith, and that is not of our own doing because it is a gift of God. It's not a result of works. So faith is a gift from God. Likewise, God's love, Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, it's not that we love God enough, but that he loved us first. In John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. All we have to do is to believe and receive or continue in that love. Our faith comes from God. Our love comes from God. Where do you think our holiness comes from? That's right, from God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not our holiness that we are to continue in, but the holiness of Christ. I mean, that's why Christ had to die, because we are incapable of becoming holy ourselves. We needed Christ to not only pay the penalty for our sins, but to impute his holiness to us, to make us clean, so that we can stand before the infinitely holy God and not immediately be destroyed. Jude 24, which Tim has been using as our benediction for the past several weeks, says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. See, our faith, our love, and our holiness all come from God. We are to continue in them. Now I'm not saying that there's no effort in our part, and I'm not neglecting the process of sanctification. I'm simply reaffirming that when Paul says that if they continue in faith and love and holiness, he's saying 
if they continue in the faith that is the gift of God, the love that comes from God, and the holiness that has been imputed to us by God. Again, it's the same path of salvation as it is for anyone else. This is not unique to motherhood. And that's partly Paul's point. He's saying that even though women have the curse of childbearing, the path of salvation is not different or more difficult, and it doesn't require anything extra. It's still by grace through faith. But wrapped up in this faith, love, and holiness are applications specifically for mothers that we're going to draw out some today. Now, a quick note before we do that. Some of you may have noticed I haven't talked about self-control, and that's true. We're going to get to that, so stay tuned. But in looking at the applications of faith and love and holiness, let's go in the same order that Paul lists them and examine faith first. And I'm calling this the faith that frees us. We just talked about how this faith is a gift of God and that we're saved by grace. When we truly and completely take this to heart, it's liberating. Because when we take that to heart, our value is no longer wrapped up in our works, but in the grace of Christ. Mothers, your worth is not wrapped up in the works you perform being a mother. Some of you out there may feel like you're a bad mom because Pam's kids know how to read and yours don't yet. Or Phyllis does this activity with her kids and you don't. Or Jan posted about all these parenting studies and books that she's reading and you barely have time to read the recipe before dinner. Or your own mother or mother-in-law say, well, back when we, you all were all kids. You know, conversely, Others of you may feel like you're a good mom because you're doing all this stuff and your kids look great and they're dressed like models and everybody compliments you on how good your kids are. So are activities and parenting books bad? Are well-behaved or well-dressed kids bad? No, not at all. But it is a problem when you begin to tie your worth as a mother, as a person, or as a child of God to your perceived success or lack thereof in being a mother. And I see how hard this is because there's the constant temptation to compare yourself to each other. You know, Kelly's doing this. I've never done that. What if I should have been doing that all along? Or I cannot believe Angela's kids behave that way. Good thing I've done X, Y, and Z for mine to prevent that. This is where the faith can free us because God showed you just how much you're worth when he sent his son to die for you. When you use that as the basis of your worth instead of your works as a mother, your works as a mother then become an act of love instead of an act of selfishness. You're free to see yourself for what you are, an imperfect mother who has been made perfect in Christ. You can say, there is nothing that I can do that's going to make, me, make God love me anymore, and there is nothing I have done that's going to make him love me any less grasped how freeing this is you don't have to look around to justify your worth as a mother you only have to look to christ and then you can do or not do something out of obedience to him and not because somebody else tells you to or or thinks you should be doing it now there also may be some of you out there who feel like you're a bad mom because well frankly you were right you did some legit bad things, and it was sin. And you have the thought that, well, if I had just been a better mom, 
perhaps my child's path would have been different. While not minimizing the tremendous amounts of pain that are often present in those situations, this is again where God's faith can free us. See, we know that God is sovereign. The same God that gave you the faith and called you can call your child and give him that faith as well. God does give the responsibility to parents to train up their child and raise them as he would. But there are many times, and there are many times that he uses that to call our children. But God's calling and his working, or but God's calling of our children and his working of events in their lives is not dependent on our obedience as parents. That is freeing as well. So that's the faith that frees us. Next is the love that leads us. Faith covered your sense of work or of worth. Love is concerned with your source of strength. Now it's been joked about, but it's also a reality, and that is that with all this work from home during the pandemic, we husbands have a much better understanding and appreciation for what goes on during the day. I know that's certainly true for me. And I think the biggest thing I realize is just how constant the demand is. There always seems to be a need to fulfill, whether it's a diaper to change, a mouth to feed, a boo-boo to kiss, a hurt feeling to console, an argument to resolve, discipline to dispense, a lesson to teach, I mean, on and on and on. And as the kids get older and maybe even leave the house, the balance of demands may switch from primarily physical to, to emotional, but that doesn't mean it's any less strenuous. And with all that demand and all the giving that you do every day, it's incredibly easy to become drained. And when you become drained, the joy, the peace, and the thankfulness often disappear, and they're replaced with worry and weariness. You may be doing everything that needs to be done, but it's out of obligation and not love. That's why continuing in the love of God is so important, because it is through his love that you find the strength to love your family. How does this work? Well, John tells us in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. As we talked about already, Jesus loved us first when we were still sinners and did not love him. And he loves us day after day after day, even when we sin against him and hurt him time and time again. When we understand and live and continue in that kind of love, we're able to extend it to our family. When you're able, then you're able to give and give and give because God is constantly pouring into you. Now, this doesn't mean it makes it any easier, and you still may be exhausted, but it can give peace and joy in the midst of everything else. You know, picture it like a well of water that you must continually draw from. Then you go to, go to the well, God, my kids will not obey today. He says, that's okay, child. There are days when you disobey me continually and I still love you. Keep loving them and guiding them, and in so doing, you're showing them my love. Or you got to go to the well again. God, my entire family is so ungrateful for all that I do. God says, I feel you, child. But remember, Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. I can give you the strength. Or God, I'm weary. I know, child, 
But do not weary of doing good, for in due season you will reap if you do not give up. The love of God is more than enough, but it does require that we continue in it. So husbands, are we making sure that we are doing everything we can to help our wives go to that well? Are we providing them that time? As Ashley will probably attest, I'm terrible at this for two reasons. One, I often wait for her to ask me for that time. That should not be. I should be proactively saying, I'll take the kids. Don't worry about dinner or, or any of the other responsibilities you have right now. Go, go have some time. And we need to do that consistently. And the other reason is that I'm selfish. Because see, me making sure that she gets time may mean that I don't get to check something off my to-do list right away. So husbands, let's make sure that we're doing a good job of this for our wives. All right, so that's the faith that frees us, the love that leads us, and now the holiness that appoints us. Faith dealt with worth, love dealt with strength, and now holiness deals with legacy. Moms, well, and dads, you can answer this question too, but what do you want more than anything else for your children? That's an easy answer, right? We want them to fall in love with Jesus and enter the same faith that we are a part of. Now, fathers are often seen as the ones who hold the primary role in passing on the faith. And yes, we do hold the responsibility, but mothers, your role is so important too. In fact, we learn in Paul's second letter to Timothy that Timothy's faith was in large part from his mother and his grandmother. For most families, mothers are around children more than fathers are. So how is that connected to holiness? Well, holiness, more than faith and love, is connected to God's presence. See, only what is perfectly holy can stand in the presence of God. And as we said before, it's why we need Christ to make us holy, because that's not something we can do on our own. But once Christ does that, we then, the Bible says, become Christ's ambassadors. We looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 earlier. Let's read that again, but this time with verses 19 and 20, to see how Paul connects the righteousness or holiness we get from Christ and then our role as Christ's ambassadors. He says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for God, or for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says that we have been given the righteousness of Christ, and now our job is to spread the message of reconciliation as ambassadors. It's directly connected. But so often we think of being ambassadors to everyone but our immediate family. Now, I'd argue that's where it starts. Now, frankly, it's not enough to just get by or even to do everything you do for your families out of love. You must also be an ambassador of Christ. Now, I hear you saying, please don't add one more thing to my plate. I just can't do it. And I hear you. But moms, when you found freedom and security in your faith, and when you are receiving the love from God that you then distribute to your family, this whole ambassadorship thing is a joy. Why? 
Because then you get to teach your kids about that freedom that you found in your faith. And you get to teach your kids about this love that you are showing them. It's just like sharing your faith with anyone else. We do it because we want others to have what we do. How can you do that? Well, there are so many ways. Here are just a couple that I've either witnessed growing up or learned from the mothers in my life, including the one I'm married to. And that is, pray with your kids. Pray for your kids. Work on Scripture memory with your kids during the day using verses that are relevant to the experiences that they are currently enduring. Sing Bible songs and hymn with your kids, even if your voice sounds like a train wreck. Let them see you doing ministry. Even better yet, do ministry with them. Show them God's forgiveness and ask for their forgiveness when you wrong them. Again, there are many ways, but you can see it's nothing more than just living out your faith or continuing in this holiness at home. And if you're intentional about that, it will have a tremendous impact on your family. And a word to grandmothers here, you have a role here as well. You can make a tremendous impact on your grandkids or your great-grandkids. You know, two my grandmothers were two of the most godly women I ever knew. And I miss them terribly, but their legacy and their life that they have lived certainly endures with me to this day. So don't ever feel like it's too late. It's not. Continue in holiness. So we've gone through love, faith, and holiness. And now there is one more thing I said we'd get to. And that is self-control. So why does Paul throw this in here? You know, I get the feeling that as he wrote this, he was like, continue in faith, yes. Continue in love, yes. Continue in holiness, yes. Oh, and i got to throw in that self-control. Well, why did he do that? Again, we know that Paul is not advocating a works-based salvation and saying self-control is going to save you. So what does Paul mean? Well, to be honest, I'm not completely sure. But my best guess is that culturally, one of the distinguishing marks of Christians was their self-control. We know that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit that we display after we're saved. The early church lived in a culture that was all about indulgence, much like ours today. And if you read some of the other epistles, we see that self-control is something that the, that the apostles particularly emphasized. Because the temptation then, like today, is to use the grace of God as an excuse to do what you wanted. So here, just as in Romans 5-6, to where Paul explains it more clearly... Paul is saying, though, to continue in the faith from God, the love of God, and the holiness by God, but remember that you are a new person, so that's not an excuse to sin, so practice self-control. My word to you mothers today regarding this is that just as the Christians of the first and second centuries look different because of their self-control, it's okay to look different from the world today. In fact, that's a good thing. Modern motherhood seems to be all about affirming your child and helping them to be all that they can be or want to be, no matter the cost. It's about letting them find their own path. It's honestly all about setting up the child as an idol and then centering your life around them. So 
when you practice biblical motherhood, like we talked about today, you're going to look different because you're going to have a faith that says, I don't need my child to be successful or unique or anything else to validate my worth as a mother. You're going to have a love from God that says, I will love my child the way God loves me, which means teaching them there is a truth and a right and a wrong way to do life. And whereas you cannot force your child to come to faith in Jesus, as an ambassador of Christ, you're going to do all you can to make sure that ground is as fertile as possible. See, it's okay to be different. And the way that society is heading, it's going to continually look more and more different. But that's fine, and that's good, because that means probably you're doing it right. The title of the message this morning is God's Promise to Mothers. We clearly saw that in God's promise of salvation in spite of the curse of childbirth. A day is coming when that curse is going to be no more. We also saw that the curse does not alter the path of salvation for mothers. It's still the same. It's still by grace, through faith, grounded in God's love and through his holiness. But we did look at some specific ways that that faith, love, and holiness can express themselves in motherhood. The faith that frees you, the love that leads you, and the holiness that appoints you. As we're about to close, I'm not sure if you picked up on this, so I want to make it clear. And that is that Jesus is central to all of this. He is the offspring of the woman who crushed Satan and fulfilled the promise of salvation. Our faith is in his love, expressed by his death, his death on the cross, and by that we are made holy. But just as the Bible is clear that all of this is a gift from God and not dependent on our works, the Bible is equally clear that we must first that, that we must receive it, and that if we do not receive it, we are actually the offspring of the serpent. So if that's you today, if you have not received Jesus, I invite you to do that because he's inviting you. To any mothers out there who have not received Jesus, it's obviously possible to be a mother without faith, without the faith, love, and holiness of God, as many do it, but I don't know why you'd want to. To anyone else out there, though we talk primarily about motherhood today, this gift can change your life as well. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have made. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to celebrate mothers. Lord, we thank you for creating motherhood. And that though there is a curse that's associated with childbearing, we look forward to the day in which that curse is no more. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, who is the one who has destroyed Satan and provides salvation. Lord, I pray for all the mothers that are in this room today. And those that are listening, and I pray, Lord, that they would be able to continue in the faith and the love and the holiness that you provide. And, Lord, that, that as they do that, they would experience the security that comes from knowing that their worth is solely in you and not their works as a mother. Lord, that the source of strength that they can find is the love that you provide to us, and it's infinite in supply. And Lord, that your holiness is what appoints us to be your ambassadors. And we have a wonderful obligation 
and responsibility and privilege of bringing you to our families. Lord, as we do this, we pray that the mothers would stand out from the world, that they would be that light, and that others would look and see and say, you know what, I want that. Father, for those who are weary, I pray that you would provide them strength. For those that don't know which way to go, what to do, I pray that you would give them wisdom. And Lord, ultimately, we do pray for your love and that it would fill us all and be in all. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.